We're going to be in Romans 12 for our sermon today. That text is printed in your bulletin, or you can turn there if you have a Bible with you. Um, we jumped into this section in the book of Romans after a long sort of theoretical doctrinal section. Now we're in the practical section, which usually people like better. The problem is that it's, uh, it's very intrusive, <laughs> this practical section. Um, Paul started off the section saying that we're not supposed to be uh, conformed into the, the value system of the world around us, uh, that we're supposed to be somewhat nonconformist as Christians. And then he jumps into specifics about that, and the first thing he says is that we're not supposed to be proud. And the way we look at pride is kind of different from the way the world around us looks at pride. Uh, usually pride is used in a positive sense in our culture. It's, a, it's something that we encourage. I mean, not like a narcissistic personality disorder kind of pride, but just garden variety pride is seen like the foundation of good mental health. You know, a good self-regard is important if you're going to be a, a healthy human being. And so when you read what the Bible says about pride, though, it's a little different than that. Like of the seven deadly sins, pride is number one with a bullet, right? Because it's the one that all the others flow out of, and it's our biggest problem as Christian believers. It's the pathology uh, that breeds all other pathologies in our lives, uh, morally and spiritually. And so we're going to dig into what he says here and look at why this is such a big problem for us individually as Christians, but also why it's such a big problem for us as a church together. Uh, that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we ask that um, dealing with this uh, subject uh, that we know is a problem for us, uh, but we don't see in ourselves very easily, that you would come help us, and that you'd make us humble as we listen to your Word, and that you would uh, do your shaping work in us as Christians and as a church. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, beginning at verse 3 of Romans 12. He says, For the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, through, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a rehearsal dinner for a friend of mine 130 years ago. And uh, I was speaking because they let you speak publicly. And I thought, that's great. I love that. And so I was, you know, warming to my subject, talking about how much I liked my friend Rob and respected him. And kind of built up to the last thing I said about him, which he's the most humble friend that I had in the world. And it went over really awkwardly, I realized. Because calling someone humble isn't flattering in our culture, right? It sounds condescending or critical of someone to call them humble. 
as if they have a lot to be humble about, you know. And I noticed that I was steeped in this uh, Christian story so much that to me, humble almost always is, has positive connotations. But it is an unusual thing to prize in our society. Like, you know, if, you're in, if you went to the kind of school that had motivational posters on the wall, you know, they didn't say, consider others better than yourself. <laughs> Don't think too highly of yourself or happy are the meek. They don't say anything like that. It's all meant to bolster your pride. And we live in a culture where people are, in varying degrees, modest, uh, but usually least modest when it comes to their bumper stickers. Right? You'll say things that you would never just drop into a conversation otherwise. Did you know that my child is a honor student at Rushak High or whatever school is here? Or just more subtly, 26-3. Hey, did you know that I ran a marathon? You'd look at somebody funny if they just dropped it in conversation, but it seems okay on a bumper sticker. Crazy contrast for Christians, you think of St. Francis, who got a fair amount of adulation in his life and since. Uh, he had a friend who was also a monk follow him around and whisper criticism into his ear all the time so he wouldn't become proud. I'm guessing most of you aren't really ready to sign up for that level of humility. I'm not looking for that kind of help myself, so don't volunteer. But you at least kind of want to think like the Avett brothers think, where they say, I want to have pride like my mother has, not like the kind in the Bible that makes you bad. Right? I don't want the kind of pride like in the Bible that makes you bad, because pride does make us bad, and it makes churches bad. And we're going to see that as we look at this. And we're also going to see how the grace of Jesus subverts pride in our lives and in our church and gives us hope that we might actually change and that we might um, see some real beauty coming through in our lives as Christians and as our life as a church. So that's what we're going to look at. First of all, how pride's a problem to us individually. And you probably know this, but what Paul says here is he says, For by the grace given to me, verse 3, I say, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Sober judgment. In other words, uh, don't be intoxicated with yourself. Right? What, when someone's intoxicated, they don't see straight. They can't walk straight. Can't think very straight. But they're the last ones to know it. Right? Everyone else around them clues in more quickly than they do, that they're intoxicated. If you're intoxicated with yourself, it's similar. You can't think straight and see straight, and everybody else around you sees it easier than you do. It's easy and natural to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Um, but as, as struggles go in the Christian life, pride's a funny one. Uh, because when people talk about what their problems are morally or things they know need to change in their lives... They talk about pride differently than they talk about things like gluttony or lust. You know, if you're, if you're saying I'm a Christian who's struggling with gluttony, I'm using food, you know, to fill the vacuum in my soul or whatever, you think, so I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to go on a diet, I tell you. And, you know, I may go on a diet with some other people. I may join an exercise club with some other people, get some accountability, and really address this problem with gluttony. Or if you've got a problem with lust, you think, well, I'm going to get accountability group of some guys who will you know, hold me to task to watch what I look at. And I'll put some software on my computer that will tell on me if I look at what I shouldn't or something like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be serious about repentance and attack this thing. And 
But there never was an accountability group for pride, right? Because nobody's ever had a good week with regard to pride uh, that they chose. You may have had humiliating weeks, but it probably wasn't your choice to do so. It's a, it's a weird kind of sin. You almost, it feels hopelessly deep so that you know, tolerating it sometimes is about the best we can do when we think about our resolve to deal with pride in our lives. Because um, it comes out in so many different ways and it gives birth to so many other sins. Usually when you're confessing a sin and looking to turn away from it with God, it's usually appropriate to say, this is the sin I want to confess and I also want to confess the pride that drives it. If you're angry, right, anger is a symptom of pride. Right? So whenever you confess anger, you kind of have to confess pride too because you get angry when other people don't think as highly of you as you think they should. Right? Uh, when the world doesn't bend to your whims and wishes. You think about uh, the foolishness of duels, uh, like with uh, Burr and Hamilton or, or other idiotically proud Southerners. You know, I would rather be dead than have an idiot think poorly of me. You know, that could be traced maybe back to pride, right? Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. But every time you're defensive, you can trace it back to pride. Every time you find yourself comparing yourself to other people and thinking you're inferior or superior, uh, every time you feel competitive in relationships that should be loving, you trace it back to pride. It's the root of our envy. It's the root of our selfishness. And so, of course, it's a huge problem for us. So how do you fix pride? If you can't just put software on your computer that will stop you from being proud, um, what do you do? I read a book on the seven deadly sins by a a Jewish uh, psychiatrist, and he was talking about a couple of his clients. He was talking about the subject of pride, and one was a businessman who'd gone bankrupt, and he'd really put all his eggs in the basket. Self-respect comes from being successful in business, and now he was a shell. You know, his pride was destroyed and you know, had to think. And so uh, Schlissel recommended to him that he uh, start an enterprise that's involved with raising money for nonprofits instead and thought that would be uh, a way for him not to be uh, proud because of business success. Have you ever known anybody that raised money for a nonprofit? Talk about proud. I mean, that's like a much bigger inducement to pride than success in business ever was. He had another one It was a lawyer, and she was getting uh, reports from her graduating class as years went by and realized that she wasn't as successful uh, and as accomplished as her classmates, and she was depressed about it because her pride was wounded. And he told her, maybe you should invest yourself in pro bono work, and that would fix your pride. Have you ever met a lawyer who was involved in pro bono work? It <laughs> uh, doesn't sound like a very good prescription to me for becoming less proud. For a Christian, should be easy, right? We believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've read, if you've been here during this time, 11 chapters that don't have a flattering word to say about us, but describe our utter need of Jesus Christ to come to our rescue. Like, we can't be acceptable in God's eyes apart from the death of the Holy Son of God on our behalf. Um, There's nothing in us that recommends us to God. And so all of our hope is in His grace. Surely if you believe that, you instantly become a humble person, right? I mean, who can believe in grace that you need the grace of Jesus and still be a proud person? Well, all of us, right? 
We all find a way to still be proud, even though we sincerely believe what we say. But this is why Paul appeals this way in verse 3. He says, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. God's grace should be the inducement for us um, to humble ourselves before God and other people, to have a sober view of ourselves. But what Paul implies here in this passage is that um, the way God works his grace into our lives and the way that we come to real terms in our lives with um, our uh, earned humility, let's say, our deserved humility, is through our interactions with each other in the church. That he works out our understanding of his grace in our relationships in his church. Because he jumps right off of this and goes into a description of the gifts and how we interact with each other in the church. And the reason he does this is because one of the insistent things about pride in each one of us, I think, it's certainly very strong in me, is I don't want to need you. I don't want to need you. And um, I like you for the most part, well as I know you, but I don't want to be dependent on you or interdependent on you or responsible for you, for that matter, uh, beyond you know, my professional obligations. And because of this, pride is a problem not for us, just individually for us, but for us as a church. Um, Paul talks in the plural here about the way we respond to God and live in his church together before God. Because when you marry Jesus, you marry his family, just like any marriage, right? You marry a whole family when you marry somebody. Um, thankfully, nobody really told Julie that. <laughs> before we got married, but we just had a Zoom call about a month ago with uh, our daughters engaged and about to get married, and we hadn't met uh, his parents. And so we had a Zoom call to meet the parents. And man, were we in the mirror before that? You know, we were trying to, you know, clean up and look as good as we could and, you know, get the lighting just right on the on the phone and the camera because we, we needed to make a good impression, right? We needed to look less crazy maybe than our family really is and prettier than our family really is because we know uh, their son is making a huge bet on our family, right? Because he isn't just marrying Allie, he's marrying us too when it comes down to it. And what Paul says here, verse 5, is that when you marry Jesus, you marry his family, you marry into the church. He says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Uh, and not just in some abstract way and that all Christians, you know, are one spiritually somehow and that we'll all be in heaven together, true as that may be. He means this church, you people, and each other. Even a young church where our relationships are all pretty young with each other. Uh, he means we're all members together in Christ of one body and that our lives are knitted together dependently so that the Christian life for all of us involves this, the people in this room. Right. And that's a very strange way to think about spirituality. It's a very strange way to think about church, even for people who've been in church for a long time. Maybe harder in Tucson, because it's a very individualistic, Wild West attitude kind of a town. The walls around the yard, I was told, are there to keep the coyotes from eating your little cats and dogs, but they also keep your neighbors out. 
right? And a good six foot concrete block wall <laughs> makes for excellent neighbors. We're pretty independent. And we also, in a city, are pretty transient. And this enables you to keep loose connections, you know? Dip your toe in when you want into friendship and community, but you're not really obligated. Uh, you don't really feel like your life is wrapped up with other people. And my pride says that's fine with me. I like it that way, really. I like to be able to keep my distance. I like to be in control over how dependent I am on other people. That feels good to me. Um, but he says in verse 4, in one body we have many members and the members don't all have the same function. We have different gifts, and so none of us can work as a Christian independently. Uh, we depend on each other. We're part of the group, and that's the only way the Christian life really works. Do you believe that? That that's the only way the Christian life really works? I mean, this is America. You can, you can listen to some pretty awesome preachers on the Internet. Um, you can change churches when they change preachers. Uh, you can go to the cool church in town for a little while. You um, can't. You just kind of take a consumer cafeteria approach to the Christian faith and make that work okay. Not if you want to be mature is the answer. Not if you want to grow to maturity as a Christian or if you want to be fruitful as a Christian, you can't. Uh, for those things, we're inter interdependent on each other, such as we are. So he gives them this list of gifts. He says, different people have different gifts in the body. This isn't an exhaustive list. There are other lists that mention other gifts as well, but they're just meant to uh, describe the whole by a shorter list. Um, and these gifts, most every Christian has some of every one of these gifts, right? Everybody is a giving person. Everybody gives their money away. Um, everybody winds up leading or teaching in some places and spots in their lives. Um, but usually you have one or two areas where you're, you know, more gifted than you are others. And it's not something that's just totally different from your personality. It's usually the way God wired you in the first place that he uses when he uses you in the church. Um, a lot of times, though, the best way to find out kind of where your giftedness lies, where you're most fruitful as a Christian, is by letting other people tell you in the church, who know you, who see you. Sometimes people can call your gifts out better than you can understand them yourselves. And especially some of you who are older in this church, who like being around younger people, it's one way that you can be of real encouragement and help is to use your life experience to call out the gifts of the younger Christians that you spend time with, uh, to help them learn to see themselves uh, and the way that God has gifted them. It's a place you can be really fruitful there, too. But pride ruins all these gifts. I mean, none of these gifts work if you're arrogant. I mean, think about it. If you have the gift of exhortation and you're arrogant, you're just going to smash people. right? You will, you will uh, snuff out the smoldering wick and break the bruised reed. If you're proud and you're trying to exhort people, if you are doing mercy and you're proud... Well, you're going to use people instead of loving and serving them in mercy. You're going to use them to make you feel good about yourself for being so merciful. Pride ruins the gift of mercy. If you are a teacher and you're proud, well, then you become super critical and unteachable yourself. It ruins your gifts. If you give money away and feel like you have real gifts 
uh, in the area of generosity and you're proud, then you're going to be puffed up and inflated and think you're something because of all the money you've given away. Right? Pride undermines the gifts. That's why these are connected in one paragraph. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Realize you're dependent in the body and use your gifts with humility is what Paul's saying to us here. Pride also makes you unable to receive the gifts of others. Because right? um, it's humbling to be dependent on other people and receive their gifts for you. It's very humbling if you have to receive uh, money to help you through a tight spot from the church. Right? If you have pride, the church doesn't get the function the way it's supposed to because you're resistant to receiving help. None of these gifts also is really very flattering when it comes down to it. These aren't things that wind up making you very proud because they kind of have built-in humiliations in them, the way Jesus has sort of set up his church. Um, I know it because my gifts are in the area of teaching and preaching. I don't have any other things that really feel like gifts to me. Um, But relative to other things I can do, that's what I do. And any preacher I know will tell you the same thing I'll tell you about it is uh, the worse you feel like you did in performing your sermon, the more God will use it and the more people will tell you that God used it. That was so meaningful to me. And then often will quote something that you didn't say at all to tell you how meaningful it was to you. But, you know, it's humbling, right? Because you realize um, even upfront gifts where you get to show off in front of people um, are gifts. They're graces. They're not accomplishments. Right? And so um, when you watch God use your giftedness, he usually makes it obvious that it's what he's doing and not what you're doing. And that's true of other gifts as well. You know, it's one reason that you don't that um, star preachers on the Internet are not the way God grows his church. I mean, that's the way I would do it, <laughs> you know, because I listen to a lot of sermons You know, now that the Internet lets me. And there's some fantastic preachers around. And you would think the thing we should do is get the best preacher and just broadcast that preacher everywhere so we would all be able to benefit from those wonderful gifts. And instead, what God has done is put mediocre preachers in almost all of his churches in relationship with congregations because that's how he wants us to grow. Because the gifts usually aren't flattering. They're usually humbling. If you're a musician and you use your gifts in the church, it's going to humble you because you're either going to be awesome playing with amateurs, and you're going to be embarrassed because everybody's going to think you're as bad as the band sounds when you know you're better. Right? Or uh, you're going to be too intimidated to use your gifts out of pride because you know you're not as good, and you don't want to lose face because you might mess up. But a man who will stand up and blow on a harmonica for the first time in front of people is a man indeed. Am I right? So, uh, Gifts of mercy and serving and leading mean that you're going to wrap up your life with tedious people and mean that you're going to to spend a lot of time listening to people who won't stop talking or having to carry another conversation because people won't start talking. Um, It's humbling to use those gifts. You will know this if you've tried it in the church. And I'll say this, in a church plant like ours, it's worse because for the most part, when you serve in a church like this, you don't even get to do the things you're good at. You just have to do what needs doing. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation. So you have to work outside the area of your giftedness sometimes to serve in a church like this. And that's really humbling. 
Our communion is set up every week by a doctor of divinity and a rocket scientist who don't have peculiar gifts at setting up communion. They do really well at it, but it's not flattering to them to say, wow, that was some awesome communion preparation. <laughs> All right. Some of our most uh, deeply experienced and gifted Christians in the church uh, with gifts to offer everyone in the church, uh, clean your chairs before you come in and sit on them. Not because of their uh, Christian maturity and depth of theology, um, but because the greatest among us serve. Right? But that's what happens in the church plant. Uh, we've learned we have to put the chairs back up after church now. And so, you know, if you want to at least appear to be humble, stay after and help put the chairs up. Use your gifts. Right? And you come to a church where there are fewer amenities. Right? We have fewer programs to uh, appeal to you and serve you. Come to a church like this, you wind up having to give more than you get, which is pretty good for you, as it turns out. Uh, but it does undermine your pride. It does undermine your pride. Some of you are um, in college right now, and some of you are recently out of college, and the transition into church life as an adult is usually a difficult transition uh, because of some of these things. Campus ministries are pretty great, right? Um, they're a lot simpler. They're a lot more streamlined. They're aimed at grounding you in your faith and the most important things in your life with God and learning uh, how to be involved in ministry and learning how to read the Bible and understanding your faith well. Um, then you get out and get to a church, and it's less cool, and it's less specifically directed at you every week, and they have old people, <laughs> and they have young people, some of whom cry right, and need to be taken care of during church campus ministry doesn't have to have a nursery uh, don't have to go to congregational meetings if you're involved in campus ministry you don't have an offering at the campus ministry and have to give your money away um, and you don't have to set up chairs usually at a campus ministry meeting uh, the transitions that you make are to come into church to serve instead of coming to be served and sometimes that's a surprising process but it's the kind of process we have to go through if we're going to have sober judgment about ourselves and be able to participate in the church with any kind of humility. As an insight into that, I said, you know, my, my gifts are in the area of preaching and teaching. Um, there were three main gifts that got identified in the Old Testament in Israel. You had prophets, priests, and kings. Two people that I can think of had more than one gift. Uh, Moses and David had more than one of those gifts. They, they had two. Nobody had three. Jesus has three. Right? He was prophet, priest, and king. But what do you do in a church like ours, a church plant, when the minister has one, gifts in one of those areas, but not the others? I mean, how do you think shepherding and pastoral care for people is really going to happen in a church that has one minister and he only has one of those gifts? going to happen with your gifts. Right? You're going to be doing most of it. How do you think a church gets organized and administrated well uh, when uh, you have a minister like me? <laughs> well, it's going to be your gifts. Right? That's how that has to work. You know? It'd be great if I had all the gifts. When you go to plant a church, you always that would be really handy, but it's just not true. Um, so to be a part of this congregation means that you're needed. 
But because I'm not very good administratively, that means you're probably going to have to kick the door down to figure out how to get in and serve and take initiative. If I was great at administration, I would have a big chart set up for you just to figure out how to get involved. But I don't because I'm not. (laughs) So I even need help there. We're interdependent that way. Christianity is a team sport. It's a team sport. And just like any team, prima donnas don't help the team very often. Those of you who played sports, I played individual sports, of course, because I didn't want to be humble. uh, But prima donnas don't do well on, on teams, right? You know, like Coach always says, there's no I in team. Well, Michael Jordan said, there's one in win. <laughs> Which I always like that. I said, you can't spell team without M-E. Right? But apparently, being a prima donna doesn't work well in church or on a team. So the more we steep ourselves as Christians in our need for the grace of Jesus Christ, the more sober our judgment about ourselves will be. And the more we live out our belief in God's grace in relationships in the church, the more we'll feel a sober judgment of ourselves and the easier it will be able to, to humble ourselves. And the more that happens, the more beauty will appear in your life as a Christian and a much more attractive presentation of the mercy of Jesus will be, be available to our friends and neighbors as they come in. We have a, a more sober judgment about ourselves. We'll be a church that makes much of Jesus and not so much of ourselves. All right, let's pray.